uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. So, if someone was to ask you who you are, I suspect that just about every one of us would just start with our name. I would say, I'm Dakota Fritz. Benny would be Benny Palmer. And we have John McDermott, Ray Fritz. We would have, we would each just automatically identify ourselves with our name. And if someone was to ask you what you do, you probably would quickly rattle off your vocation. You could be a teacher, you might be a student, stay-at-home mom. Like, each of those things are true of us. But today I want to show through Romans 6 that our identity isn't just found in, in like, our name and what we do from day to day, but fundamentally each of us are identified with one of two people, that we're either identified with Adam, sin, and death, or we're identified with Christ, righteousness, and life. Now, that would be, in that sense, that is our name. So I would be Dakota Adam Fritz, or I would be Dakota Jesus Fritz. So, because that is who I identify with so fundamentally. And, like, I know that as I start talking about the gospel, it may sound like, it might be easy to just check out and think that, as I'm talking about the gospel that we already know so well, so often it's just like, oh yeah, I've heard that a hundred times before. But, like, I want to challenge you guys that today, try and listen with new ears and see with new eyes that the doctrine of union with Christ really is, it can be transformational for how we view ourselves and how we live our lives. So, the doctrine of union with Christ is found all throughout the New Testament, but we largely see it, really, in the words of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, in the Apostle Paul, in his letters, that Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, so often, or in him. Like, we see that in the beginning of Ephesians, that we were chosen in him. And what Paul is saying there is more than just, like, the way that we use it today, where it's, you just sign off on a letter or an email, and you say, like, at the end of it, you write, in Christ, Dakota Fritz. Because when we do that, all we're doing is we're just kind of identifying oh yeah, you can think of me as a Christian, really. That's often what we mean. But there's such a rich, deep meaning beyond that. And Paul also, he, he talks in other terms about union with Christ. Like, we're members of Christ's body, so we've been brought into him. And Jesus talks about us as being branches that were grafted into the vine, and Christ is the vine. So we were, we were brought into him. Now, this may sound like it could just be a, a deep theological topic that just stays in, in theory and it doesn't change anything for us, but I want to show today that it can, it can be life transformational to realize that my salvation is based on who Christ is and it's not based on me. It's not based on what I do. It's not, like, it's not about how many times like how many sins I've committed versus how many good things I've done, but it's all based on who Christ is as his person. And like, I'm thankful that I have grown to be able, or been, that I've been shown this doctrine and been able to spend time studying it out and learning about it. So it has helped me to understand that God has adopted me into his family, that if I'm united with Christ, I'm a son of God, just the same as Christ is. And that if it's based on Christ, then that is an eternal bond. That is an eternal adoption. 
And through union with Christ, as we saw in ABF earlier, that God the Father said of Jesus when he was baptized, that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That that, through union with Christ, is true of us. That we are his son in whom he is well pleased. Uh, with sons and daughters. But it has helped me also to realize that I have power, and each of us have power to overcome our temptations and our, and our sin, that we've been set free from that, and that sin no longer has control over, any, over each of our lives if we are united to Christ. So, because, and that's because we took place in Jesus' death and his resurrection. So realizing my union with Christ and your union with Christ, it's also transformed the way that I understand like the way that we relate to each other as a church itself, that I am united to Christ, you're united to Christ, so therefore I'm united to you. And each of us have covenanted with each other and been brought into membership together so that we are one body and we need to live that way. But now, since we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, it would be, like, I think it's proper to give a little bit of background of what's been going on in the first five chapters of Romans. Romans was a letter written from the Apostle Paul in around the time of 57 to 50, 55 to 57 A.D. And it was written to the believers in the city of Rome that he was writing to teach them and encourage them, but he was also trying to raise support for his missionary journey that he wanted to go on to make it all the way to Spain to reach the end of the known world. And so he was writing ahead of himself to Rome to tell them, hey, I want to come see you, and I want you, to, want you to raise money and raise support for me to get me to where I'm ultimately aiming for. So Romans is compiled up, of, it's, broken, or it's broken down into 16 chapters now. So it's chapters 1 through 11 is Paul's explanation of the gospel. And chapters 12 through 16 are it's more practical implications of what he's already said before. So chapters 1 through the midpoint of 3 is basically an indictment saying that every individual is a sinner and we're all deserving of the condemnation from God. But then at chapter, in the middle of chapter 3, Paul then introduces Christ as the righteousness that God requires. And he shows that our faith in him and in his life and his death and his resurrection, is like that is what can save us and that, that is what satisfies God. So then in chapter 4, Abraham is used as an example of justification by faith in the past. And Paul shows that salvation is by the grace of God alone and not by any of our fulfilling of the law or doing good works. And then in chapter 5, Paul deals with a lot of what we talked about last week in ABF, the, the doctrine of imputation. That Paul, Paul shows that when Adam first sinned and when he ate in the garden, he ate of that fruit for me and he ate of that fruit for you and for everyone else in the world. That we are, just, we are all just as guilty simply by our association with Adam. And he was, he was what theologians would call the federal head of humanity. That he stood as the one representative of each of us. That's why we are in Adam and that's why our name is in Adam. And God, like God set it up so that his choices would affect each of us so that when he decided to eat, that it was for us. But on the other hand, well, and we were really, we were left, we were left hopeless in Adam because we, each of us, each of us were sinful, we were just wrong, and God required righteousness, something that we couldn't provide. 
So God decided that he, sent, that he was going to send his son, Jesus, to be the second Adam, to fulfill what Adam had not done, to live a perfect life, to, may, to live a perfect life, to obey his father completely, and so that his life could be counted to us through, through his death where he transferred, he took our sin away, and we were united to him. So, so we see that Adam was the federal head. Like we see, really, there's a parallel between the two, that Adam was the federal head of everyone that was, and he brought sin and death into the world. But Christ was the head of his people, that he was the head of his believers, that all those who would believe in him, he lived a perfect life so that we might have a perfect, so we might become perfect through him and so that we could receive grace and eternal life that follows after that. So now, that's, what ha- that's what's happened in the first five chapters of the book. And now we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were, ba- we were buried, therefore, by, with him by baptism into death in order, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as as instruments for for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you that we could come together today to be able to open your word up and be able to learn what you have to say to us in the sixth chapter of Romans, Lord. And I pray that each of our lives would be transformed by the realization that when Christ died to sin, he he died, he died for me, and I died with him. And when he rose from the grave, I rose again with him. And that now each of us must walk in that newness of life that we have received through his resurrection. And Lord, I pray that that would um, change the way that we live each and every day. Um, that, it, that it wouldn't just stay here on Sunday morning, but that it would follow us on Monday and on Wednesday and every other day of the week, Lord. Um, and I pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I suspect that through hearing this passage, that 
many of you are already kind of lost with what Paul is saying because he's kind of he says a lot of things and he's bouncing around a lot and too many commas in there but I want you to know that if you feel that way you're in good company like I, I heard once that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher in Britain in the 20th century, he was once asked when he was going to preach through the book of Romans. And to that he said, as soon as I can understand chapter 6. So that we're, we're not alone in that. And I don't claim to have a complete grasp of, the, like, of what Paul is saying here. I, like I have an idea, but I haven't fully applied it in my own life. But that's what I'm hoping that each of us can work towards today. And it's my hope that union with Christ will not just remain something that we can think about, but that it will trans- completely transform us. Because it's really useless if we, if we just learn a new truth that we can't do anything with. So we need to realize that as believers, our identity is found in the person of Christ. And, through, and we receive that through his death and his resurrection and his life. So Paul begins chapter 6 with the question so what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound now I'm not avoiding answering that question but I think that the answer will become clear as we go through the rest of what Paul is saying um, like as we because Paul basically he asks that question then he kind of builds up this whole long thing and then he kind of by the end you're like oh yeah that makes sense so we'll just come back to that later on But through these 14 verses, I want each of us to be able to take away the three main points that Paul is making here, or that I see in the text, that we are united in Christ's death, we are united in Christ's resurrection, and also that we are united in Christ's life. And if you were to leave here today without remembering anything else, like the one sentence that I want people to remember is that what's true of Christ is true of me. And if he has died, then I have died. If he has risen, then I have risen. So first, we're united in Christ's death. So Paul begins saying this by assuming it in a rhetorical question in verse 2. He says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul already is just assuming that a believer is already dead to sin. So his structure here is kind of like, He's going to make a statement, he's going to step out there boldly, and then he's just kind of going to work his way up and proving what he's already said. So, to be, to be a good steward of, what, uh, of the word here, I think we need to ask first, what does Paul mean by being dead to sin? And then, secondly, like, why, does, why does he assume that every believer has already died to sin? So, first, what, what does being dead to sin mean? In verse 7, we see that uh, Paul, Paul says that for one who has died has been set free from sin. So what he's saying here is that any person that has died has been set free from sin. Or the literal translation from the Greek is, means that, he, that the one who has died has been justified from sin. And it's kind of, I thought that was interesting when I read that it was the word justified because usually we think justified in legal terms that it's the satisfaction of the... or it's like fulfilling the law and it's just like... Ju- it's a very just legal action. But in this setting, 
it really doesn't fit as being a legal term, but it's actually, I've, I've come to realize that it's a, it's a, this is a liberation term that set free and justified, liberated, that you were no longer, there's no more claim held like on you for your sin when you're united or when you die. So that like an example or one example that I've heard, I heard this from Sinclair Ferguson. He said that in old and apparently in old Scots law that when a criminal was to be executed, they would put a notice or, or the day that he was executed after he was uh, after he was executed, they put a sign on the door on the, of the prison at 8 a.m. saying that at 8 a.m. on such and such a day, such and such a person was justified. And what that meant was that the law had no more claim. It couldn't, like, the law was satisfied. The, the payment was done and the payment was over. And he was set free from that. So I, it's really, like, that was really interesting hearing him use that example. Because really, we could say the same thing of Christ. That they could have put a sign up on Golgotha that said, at 3 p.m. on such and such a day, Jesus of Nazareth was justified. And that that all the sins that were on him were completely satisfied and were to never be brought up again. So it shows us that it's a very, like, because that's a historical fact that Christ has died, that's how certain our, like, our justification is and how we are liberated from sin. That 2,000 years ago is when that happened. That Christ died for each of our sins 2,000 years ago, and we can know as a matter of fact, that because it happened in the because it happened in history, that, um, that it's a certain fact that we will be justified through Christ. And then the second thing that we need to ask is, why does Paul assume that every believer has already died to sin? Like, who has died to sin? Would we say that it's just the believer that does his devotions every day, or a believer that's you know become perfect in this life? Or is it just someone that's like, or is it just someone that's passed on and to be with the Lord? Is that when they're dead to sin? Or is it every believer today is dead to sin? I think what Paul is saying here, like as he assumed in verse two, is that every one of us is already dead to sin. So that um, it's, a, it's just a simple natural consequence of being united to Christ that you're being, you're being brought from one kingdom to the other, from one family to another, that you were dead to that sin, you're dead to that family that you were in, and like it has completely and forever been changed. And union with Christ, like it is the truth that really ties together all the other aspects of our salvation, that we were, we were chosen in Christ in, in eternity past. We were chosen, we were called into Christ, we were brought alive, in Christ. We were justified in Christ. We were adopted into God's family through Christ. We were and we are sanctified and we were sanctified. We were sanctified and we're being sanctified. And one day we will be glorified with Christ. So Christ is our connection with each of these aspects of our salvation. Like some people speak of this as being an umbrella term over everything else that happens in salvation. The Union with Christ, it, it gives us a new identity and it is just what we need to understand when we get prideful in ourselves to realize that everything that we are, everything that we have is not from ourselves, but that it's come from God. 
And it's come through Christ. So that with union with Christ, we are able to say that what's true of Christ is true of me. And what happened to Christ happened to me also. So has Christ died? So have you. And you died when you were united with Christ. And sin lost the death grip that it had on you. It, it's no longer there. Now, it's, I find it interesting that Paul t- uses the phrasing, of, or he uses the word baptism, both in verses 3 and 4. But he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, uh, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, it, in English, we do see the word baptize, but I don't think that that's... The, the problem is we often associate baptism immediately with water, and that's what, bapt, like, is it, that's what baptism is fundamentally talking about. But baptism is a symbol, and the Greek word for baptize, it literally means immerse or being submerged into, that we are being brought into Christ. So baptism really is an image of our union with Christ, which is what happens at our salvation. And baptism, or when, one, when a person places their faith in Christ, they are immersed or submerged into him. Christ, not only, Christ doesn't just step in the place like an attorney might do, or like if you imagine that in a law, like in a court of law, that the attorney might be the one to stand in, in between you or something, but you are, you are actually united with Christ. And the two become one flesh, which... That often sounds, like, when you hear that, that makes you think of marriage, usually. Because, I mean, that goes all the way back to Genesis. But that really is what happens when we're, sa- when we're saved. Our union with Christ is a marriage union with Christ. That we are, we are brought into him. And that's how we receive his name. And so that what's true of Christ is true of us, and we are brought into him. And we are no longer named Adam. Our maiden name is gone. And now our name is in Christ. So in the outward act of baptism, we are brought into Christ and we are lowered down into the water, which resembles the water of judgment that Christ passed through. That Christ, he is already, we are in him and he's already gone through those waters of judgment. So he was able to go down into the water and rise again. But, so, in, so we are baptized in him. And this symbol, it shows that um, that we are made one with the person that did take on, has already in the past ta- taken on the wrath for each of our sins. And it leads to the second point that Paul is making, that we're united in Christ's resurrection. Like, death is sin. Uh, death to sin is necessary, but it is pointless if each of us remains dead. Like, if, basically, if Christ... If Christ has died, to our, died bearing our sins and he did not rise again, it would have been pointless. Because we, no, we would have no hope. Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians 15. That we would be the biggest fools if we believed, if we believed in Christ, but he did not rise again. So we, we have our faith in the one that has died to sin, but had the power to rise again and overcome. And just as in baptism, when we go under the water... Christ, Christ has already come out of the water and he, his resurrection power is, is the arms that pull us back up and out of the water. So, 
If it were not for union with Christ, each of us would remain in the waters of judgment, that we would have no grounds on our own or in Christ to be able to rise again and to be resurrected. But Christ did not remain in the grave. And archaeologists could look all over the whole earth, but they would never be able to find the remains of Jesus Christ. He is risen again, and he is not there. Just as when the disciples went looking for Jesus on the day that he rose, and the angel was sitting there, and they said, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Through union with Christ, that's true of us. We need to realize that we are not to be found living, being the living among the dead, but that we are already, like, we shouldn't be looked for among the dead, but we are already risen alive. And what was said of Jesus by the angel there is true of us now. That you're bound to sin no longer. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're being sanctified. And you are a new creation in Christ. So that what's true of Christ is true of you. And it's just as certain that you have been risen to life in Christ if you place your faith in him as it is certain that he cannot be found in any grave today. And it is also true that since you've been united with Jesus and the wrath of God has been satisfied, we are, we are just as certain to pass through the physical death of this world and rise again as Christ was. Our hope for sanctification and for glorification are rooted in this historical fact. Now we see Paul's third point, that we are united with Christ's life. Now, it may sound like all of this is too good to be true or that I'm just living in the future or something like that because, I mean, I sin. You guys, you guys know I sin, and I know that each of you sin. So, like, what is Paul saying here? Are we already perfect? Are we, is al- are we already as good as we're ever going to be? Like, w- is there any future hope? Will we ever be sinless? And, like, I want to encourage you by, know, by telling you that salvation is, it is a past thing, it's a past event, it's a, current, it's a current thing that's happening, and it's also future. So it's all three. And it's known, it's commonly spoken of now, is the already not yet idea. That we are already saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so we need to be encouraged that if we, since we still see sin in our lives, like, it's, we are not under that bondage, but it's still existent there. But it will one day be completely gone, and we can look forward and hope to that in Christ. So in Christ, we are already as justified or accepted by the law as we will ever need to be. And it's an impossibility that we could ever do anything to alter our standing before God. Because salvation and justification are not based on anything that we could do, but simply on the person of Christ. Because Christ, the person, he is righteousness. He is what righteousness is, and I am united to him. So therefore, I am righteousness. An analogy of this is what happens, like, when it, if a couple was to get married, and the wife was deeply in debt, like, she could never get herself out. It was, you could say it was an infinite debt. She, there was no way of getting out of it. But then her husband was infinitely rich. And when they got married, the husband paid her debt, and he closed her account. But he didn't stop there, because then she would just have a blank slate, and she, she wouldn't have any money left. Oh, she wouldn't have any money. But then what the husband does is he adds her as a cosigner on his infinitely wealthy account, so that she, his wealth is her wealth, and what's true of him is true of her. And that is what Christ has done for us. 
<clears throat> and not only that, but his father is also her father. So God the Father is our father. And we are brought into this union with him through, like, through Christ. So Christ, is, one, one person said that Christ is our immediate union. So without a mediator, Christ is our, we are united with him. But through him, we have a mediated. He is the mediator between us and God. So we have access to the Father through Christ. But not only are we definitively justified, but we are also securely sanctified in Christ. Sanctified simply means being set apart. And every believer is set apart for God, even now. We are set apart from the bondage of sin to life to God. So we are brought out of that over to here. And we should be encouraged to know that if we are in Christ, we will never again face punishment from God. And this is the already aspect of our salvation. The work is done, but it still needs doing until the, uh, until the not yet comes. In the, in the present, we are being sanctified, and we will continue to be sanctified until we are glorified. Now, in the spiritual sense, believers have already been, ba- have already been resurrected, and, but still we see every one of us is still in broken bodies. Like, we're still not, it's still not perfect yet, like, we have, people have joint problems in the morning, and they have health issues to get them in and out of the hospital. We know a lot about that now. Um, but, yeah, we each have that still within us. So we are looking forward to the day when we have the resurrection of our bodies, to where we will be truly and completely like Christ. And, but we need to realize that our hope for these things, to have better hips and hearts and heads and all these things, like... They, that will never satisfy us. That Christ, Christ is the only thing that can ever bring satisfaction. Like, even the streets of gold in heaven would seem like just abandoned, like abandoned street. Like, it, it, was not, it would not be pretty to us at all if Christ was not there. He is the only thing that we, long, that we long for as believers, or that we should long for. So, since we are sanctified but are not completely sanctified in time and space, then how are we to live today? Paul says that in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So Paul is saying, because all of this is true, because you have died with Christ, and you've died to sin, you've been brought out of that union into this union with Christ, because you've been resurrected again with Christ into life, with him toward God, then therefore, then defeat the defeated is what he's saying. It's already been defeated and you need to keep defeating it. The war has already been won, but you need to finish the battle. And he goes on in verse 13 to tell us that we need to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. And he says yourselves. So he doesn't, he doesn't clarify, like, give me just your hands, give me a portion of your time, give me this one thing. But he says, give your whole self. So that would be, give yourself and your time with your family to God. Be honoring God with your time there. Honor God with your time. Um, like, honor God with your time at work, your interactions at work, your thoughts towards others. That is what God desires. He desires your whole self. And we do it, out of, we do it as an act of love, not a, out of, we feel like we have to do something. Now, how would, a, 
How would a fuller understanding of union with Christ transform our attitudes towards the local church? Like, if we, under, if we truly understood that I am united to Christ, you're united to Christ, and we're united together, then why wouldn't we want to join together as members of one body? Why wouldn't we want to be here together, ever, like, to be here together on Sundays and throughout the week and to bear one another's burdens and to care for each other? Like, that should be a natural, like, that should be a natural thing for us. Like, you love your family and you want to go to your, to family events, but this is your family, too. They, we are made one with, with each other, and we need to live like that. Um, next, the, Paul, the reminder that Paul gives in verse 14 provides the hope that every believer needs as we fight to kill sin and become progressively sanctified. Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you. So what he's saying is that this is certain. If you are in Christ, Sin will not have dominion over you. You have the power within you with, from Christ that is the person of Christ that will, can overcome sin and will overcome sin. Now, it may be a long process, but you will have the victory in that if you are in Christ. So we need to fight and we need to kill sin. And also we need to realize that with Hebrews 4.15, that our, we, have a high, we have a great high priest that... Actually, I'm just going to read it. Um, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So that person was Christ. He was the one that was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And he is the one that we have been united to. So if he was tempted in every way and yet without sin, we can be, that. We can be without sin in Christ or we can defeat sin without Christ, or with Christ. <laughs> so, do you think that if you're a believer and you commit a sin today, that God might possibly get mad at you? Like, it can be tempting for each of us to think that. You know, you might think that, wow, God can forgive, but I haven't done, like, I've done this thing that's so bad that maybe God can't forgive me, or I don't know if I can really bring this before God. But I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, like, God already knew what you were going, like, in eternity past, God already knew the sins that you were going to commit, and he still chose to love you and for Christ to bear your sins so that he paid that debt once for all back in, back in 2000, or back 2,000 years ago, not in the year 2000. <laughs> so we now come all the way back to the first question that Paul, that Paul posed in verse 1, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So hopefully now we can all say emphatically, by no means. Because how can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? It doesn't make sense. Like, it would be like me saying that, you know, since I live in Kentucky now, I may as well live in China too. Like, I live in one place, and that is, like, man cannot serve two masters. So that if I am in Christ, I cannot live in sin, and I cannot go on sinning. Like, in Christ now, we play by a different set of rules, and we are progressively living the way that we want to live. It's not something that's like, oh, I have to do this just because it needs to be done, but that it, it's what we want to do. And if we don't desire, um, like, if we don't desire that, then maybe we should consider, like, whether we are united with Christ 
as of yet. Like, if, basically, if you haven't, if you, if you don't see any change in your life yet, then maybe you aren't united and you should, like, you should talk to someone about that or consider, am I truly united to Christ? Have I put my faith in his work? So, and it's not something that any of us can work up to on our, in, our, like in and of ourselves. Like if, we, if we try to kill sin or make ourselves better on our own, apart from union with Christ, it's about as effective as putting makeup on a corpse and wanting it to look alive. We, we can't bring the life into, into ourselves. And each of us needs to be driven to the point of being able to say that in Christ alone my hope is found. So... What does all of this theological talk really mean for us? Will it change the way that we see ourselves throughout the week? Will it change the way that we interact with each other, our commitments to the church? Will it change the way that we praise God for what he's done on our behalf? Because I think that we've wasted the last certain amount of time in our day-to-day if we, if we just leave it as a theological topic to think about. We need to realize that this will transform our lives to realize that what's true of Christ is true of me, and what's true of Christ is true of you. And I hope that you'll be able to find strength in moments of temptation to realize that sentence, uh, to realize that you, have, you can overcome sin because Christ has already overcome for you. And you are no longer Adam's, but you are Christ's. You are Christ's own, and no longer will you be named Adam, but you are now named Christ. So pray with me, would you? Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be able to teach your word today. And I pray that uh, everything that I've said would glorify you and that I would have, I will have only spoken what's your will um, and what's true, Lord. And I thank you that Christ took my place and imputed, gave me, uh, gave me himself, gave me his righteousness, brought me into marriage with him so that I could be adopted into your family. And I pray that that would change each, of, change each of our lives and that we would be able to praise you more and more each day as we develop a deeper understanding of what you've done for us. And I pray that we would continue to look forward and hope to the final resurrection of our bodies to where we'll be perfectly united with you and looking into your eyes one day. Um, And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.